0: The Jewish views on President Donald Trump's immigration policy. The community appears to almost be united. Jewish Book Week 2017. We find out what to expect from the annual literary festival. And a very royal performance, courtesy of the Jewish lads and girls brigade.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Chief Rabbi has condemned President Donald Trump's executive order clampdown on entry to the United States from seven Muslim countries as totally unacceptable. Ephraim Mervis, who was speaking at World Jewish Relief's annual dinner, got a huge round of applause as he said the order discriminated purely on grounds of religion or nationality, and that Jews know what it's like to be the victims of discrimination. He went on to say that the Jewish religion recognises no borders when it comes to acts of kindness and benevolence. It comes as rabbis from liberal and reform Judaism warned in a letter sent to the Times about the dangers of institutionalised hatred going unchallenged, especially in the light of Holocaust Memorial Day. They wanted the Prime Minister, Theresa May, to convey to President Trump the lessons of history. And at the same dinner where Rabbi Mervis spoke, the Prince of Wales said the lessons of the Holocaust are in danger of being forgotten. Prince Charles went on to say that his grandmother sheltering a Jewish family during the Shoah helped inspire his work with all faiths, and that religion empowers rather than limits. And he talked about World Jewish Relief's work with impoverished Jews in Ukraine, as well as with those fleeing the horrors of Syria. Well, Israel's Prime Minister will meet Donald Trump next month in Washington, D.C. The President's White House spokesman, Sean Spicer, said Trump was looking forward to discussing strategic military and intelligence cooperation with Mr. Netanyahu. Mr. Spicer said that the relationship with Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East was crucial to the security of both nations. A father of five who began a new life as a woman after leaving an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community has lost a family court fight over her children. The woman, who can't be named, hadn't seen the youngsters who are aged between two and twelve since leaving the North Manchester Haredi community 18 months ago. The mother said that allowing the children to see their father could lead to them being ostracised by the community. The judge agreed, albeit with regret, but is allowing the exchange of letters and cards. And our last news story this week, Israel has said it will take 100 orphan children fleeing the civil war in Syria. It's the first sign that the country's stance on refugees from war-torn Arab neighbours may be easing. Most of Israel's asylum seekers in recent years have come from Africa and refugee agencies have described the country as a reluctant host. Well, the news is followed now by The Sport with Andrew.
2: Thank you very much, Viv. Wickham Wanderers duo Joe Jacobson and Scott Kashkett admitted to feeling a mixture of pride and disappointment after they suffered an injury time FA Cup defeat against Tottenham Hotspur. Leading 3-2 in the 89th minute, the League Two side conceded two late goals including a 97th minute winner as they fell to a 4-3 loss. In Australia, Israeli Yishai Oliel suffered a dramatic defeat of his own after he lost the final of the Junior Boys Singles competition. The 17-year-old who had won the first set was visibly distraught at the medal presentation ceremony and, unable to speak, was consoled by his opponent. And finally, Russell Goldstein enjoyed mixed fortunes with the England futsal team, taking part in their three European qualifiers in Bulgaria the three Lions missed out on qualifying to the next round as they finished second in the group. You can read the full interview with Wickham's two footballers and catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Foreign Editor Stephen Oreschuk and Features Editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Stephen, I'm sure this is going to come as absolutely no shock to our listeners, but there can only be one person who features on the front page this week, and that would be
3: President Donald Trump. Dare I even ask why? Oh, why? What a question. Why? What on earth? That's what we're all asking ourselves. Uh, Yes, the Donald has found himself on the front page of the Jewish news again. Most people will know. But just to recap, his ban on people coming into the U.S. from seven Muslim majority countries, including Iraq, Iran, Syria, Sudan, Somalia, Libya and Yemen, has everybody up in arms. It's very rare that someone can unite the Jewish community in this way, but all groups from across the spectrum, including all the mainstream groups that you wouldn't usually get commenting on this sort of thing, have all come out in a wave of anger. And we're talking
0: everyone here virtually from the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, right the way through to some of the smaller
3: organizations, aren't we, who have signed an open letter? Absolutely. The chief said it was totally unacceptable. About 40 reform rabbis said that this was legalizing hatred. Liberal Judaism, human rights groups like Rene Kassan and JCOR. the Board of Deputies has slammed this, HMDT. In America, ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, AJC, which is a major advocacy group, they've all come out and said this, this is terrible. And the theme from Almost all of them is that as Jews, the Jewish community knows perhaps better than anyone else what it is to flee persecution and how important open doors are.
0: What is fascinating though amongst all of this, and this has been put across, to be fair, in mainstream media, I've heard it a couple of times. The alternative argument is that with the world so busy condemning President Trump on doing this to several Muslim countries, what about all of those countries who ban Israeli citizens from entering them. That has been put across as an alternative argument. And it's also something that I believe that Theresa May is calling on Jeremy Corbyn to recognise as well.
4: Well yes, on Wednesday, Theresa May did actually call on Corbyn, as he said, to stand up and condemn discrimination against Israeli citizens by Arab states. She made the point quite eloquently, I think, that for many years now these Muslim majority countries have banned Israeli citizens from entering their borders. On the one side, you can see it is a valid argument. And obviously, we do celebrate Theresa May for saying this. But on the other hand, looking at the Trump issue, the timing of this is absolutely appalling. We're literally in the week after Holocaust Memorial Day. And refugees are at the forefront of our minds, not just because of Holocaust Memorial Day, but also because of all the migrant crises going on right now around Europe. So to just close your borders off completely, it seems such an extreme measure to have taken. And I think that's why Trump has, rightly so, got all this condemnation from everywhere.
0: It is very interesting that... President Trump's argument is that it is in the interest of national security, and yet that doesn't appear to be washing with anyone.
3: No, I fully agree that there is an argument to be had, which is that to protect America, you need to protect those who come into it and and screen against jihadists. The important thing is that the intelligence services in the U.S. have never called for a ban on these countries. They've just called for better intelligence. And there is a huge question as to whether this is actually legal to put up a blanket ban on people based on their country of origin or the country that they're coming from. Interestingly, the U.S. Attorney General told all the border guards not to fulfil this executive order. She was promptly sacked and within hours someone else was replaced her and that someone else said, yes, it's fine, it's legal. Okay, well, I dare say that this is going
0: to unfold as the weeks go on. Unbelievably enough, there is other news in the paper this week and there's a rather troubling story about a transgender father from the Haredi community. Obviously, we've just heard the details in the news with Viv, but do elaborate.
3: It's an incredibly sad story. It's a Haredi family from Manchester, five children, and the father became a transgender woman. And the case went to court, and the judgment has been published this week. The case was actually heard at the end of last year. And the judge has said it's with real regret he has had to rule in the mother's favor. The mother had argued that if the children were to continue to see the father, the family would be ostracized by the community. And the judge agreed. And this brought angry reactions from within the community Keshet UK, which represents the Jewish LGBT community, said that this was a cruel judgment. They criticized the Haredi community and the social care system, but they said no one should be forced to choose between their family and their Jewish community. Likewise, liberal Judaism, said they condemn any community leader who threatens to ostracize children and use them as pawns in a medieval game playing. It's a truly unique
0: case. It really is. I don't ever recall how long I've been working within Jewish news, as it were. And I don't mean the paper. I mean Jewish news as in a profession. I don't ever recall anything like this, and I'm sure none of us do. So it is truly fascinating. And here's hoping it does pan out in everyone's best interests. And I believe that moving on, that His Royal Highness Prince Charles has had a very busy week this week, Fran.
4: Very nice for the Jewish community, but he has been at the World Jewish Relief Dinner. And then at Buckingham Palace, he hosted some young musicians from JLGB. Who we'll speak to later in the programme, by the way. Absolutely. And then on Wednesday, he visited Yavna School in Boreham Wood. So it's been quite an exciting time for the Jewish community, especially for the young Jewish community. He was shown around Yavna College. All the children really enjoyed seeing him. I think he was even shown how to make a balloon crown, which is quite interesting. So it's really nice seeing him engaging with the Jewish community in this way.
0: And the Prince is absolutely no stranger to the Jewish community, is he? He's always been very pro and very much involved with the Jewish community. I don't necessarily remember quite so many royal appearances in one week, but that's very good news.
3: Yes, two of the three he was accompanied by the chief rabbi. He actually gave a tremendous speech at WJR, the annual dinner, and he recalled how his grandmother, Princess Alice, actually sheltered Jews during the Holocaust. So it was a very personal speech. He obviously does feel a deep connection to the Jewish community, which is great.
0: Well, just finally, we've got time to go further back in time for dinner. Do we, Fran? If
4: you happen to watch... Back in Time for Dinner, which was the series fronted by Giles Corrin about a family who decided to experience life in the later half of the 20th century. Well, they were signed up again. The Rob Shaws are back.
0: It's the same family. It's the it? same
4: family. Now they're going further back in time for dinner. See oh, what they I did see. there? I
0: see. Now I understand the title.
4: And now they're experiencing the first half of the 20th century. And it's quite fascinating. Obviously, they get to try out the the shall we say culinary delights of the early 1900s, which, if you missed the first two episodes already, involves hacking flesh off a calf's head to make mock turtle soup or uh, making scrambled egg and brains that kind of thing the kind of thing you could whip up today. But it sounds a, like
0: someone you want to go around to for Friday night. Well,
4: well and speaking of Friday night, nice segue. Rochelle Robshaw is Jewish, actually, and she goes back with Giles Corrin, who's also Jewish, to Cable Street, where her family actually came from. She visits, this will be in next week's episode, by the way, but she visits a shop that was owned by her great-great-grandfather, and the family actually get to sit down and experience a traditional Jewish dinner. So there's plenty of chicken, canadlich, chicken soup, filter fish and all those other delights, salt beef sandwiches. It's really nice to see that on mainstream TV as well. And it's fascinating to see how our ancestors
0: lived. Certainly is. Well, now we're all salivating. I think we'll look forward to seeing that particular episode of Further Back in Time on BBC Two. And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've already been hearing, the chief rabbi has condemned President Donald Trump's executive order clampdown on entry to the United States from seven Muslim countries as totally unacceptable. Rabbis and other senior leaders from the community have sent a letter about the dangers of institutionalized hatred. This has been a subject of enormous contention, not just for Jews and Muslims, but people of all faiths. I've been speaking to political commentator Charlie Wolfe and founder and executive director of the Jewish Council for Racial Equality, Dr Edie Friedman. I started by asking Edie to give us her reaction to the executive order.
5: Well, I, with many other people, was absolutely shocked by this act and done apparently without any sort of consultation, without any preparation by any of his officials And if this is the way foreign policy or domestic policy is going to be carried out, then I think we're all in for a a difficult time.
0: Do you mind if I just double check when you say that done without any consultation or anything like that? It couldn't have come as a shock, surely, because it wasn't that President Trump didn't say that when he was running his campaign that he wasn't going to do this.
5: Well, I think, you know, people have been debating for a long time about whether the rhetoric would actually match up with actual behavior. You know, I think many of us were hoping that rhetoric was one thing and behavior when it came to it, especially having such a, a, shall we say, such a responsible job would be much more measured, much more nuanced and done in consultation with, with other people.
0: Now Charlie, you're obviously a political commentator and all mm-hmm. throughout Donald Trump's campaign to become the next president of the US, you made it no hidden secret that you were very much in favor of what he did. Now he has implemented one of his more controversial promises. Mm-hmm. Are you pleased? Are you happy to see that he's done what he said he was going to do?
6: Yes, that's what you expect out of politicians is that they do what they're, you know, they campaign and say they're going to do and is exactly what he's done. And, and uh, I'm sorry to disagree uh, and, and uh, I guess correct Edie, but it went through the review process. It was con- uh, it was consultation. It was a legal order because the attorney general's office, the Department of Justice had approved this. That's why we had this situation where the attorney general, the temporary uh, attorney general was fired because she was refusing to carry out what was a lawful order. So we had grounds to fire her. I think we're just sort of in this period of hysteria going on over Donald Trump. Uh, from a lot of people, which is unfortunate. I don't know if it's because the left is just in shock that a they lost when you know Hillary thought it was her turn that, you know, someone who's not a member of the club, who's not quite, you know, what they expect to be won this. But, you know, that's who was chosen by the people. He won the election. He is the president. So, uh, you know, I think it's time maybe to take a, a slight breath here and calm down. You know, he's he's not, uh, I know, I don't think Edie would make comparisons to Hitler, obviously, but, you know, we've, we've had that over here in London. We've had comparisons to the 1930s. You know, I just don't see that. Now, I I would say to you, yes, could he have maybe implemented it a little bit better? Probably. However, I mean, it is also fair to say it's a new president. You would get this from someone new in any situation, Mr. Obama, Mr. Bush uh, Jr., Mr. Bush C- well, maybe Mr. Bush Sr., would have uh, not had that uh, because he was the serving vice president. Well, I tell you what, Charlie, you you raise a couple
0: of points there. So hang on a second. Let's let's put that to Edie. Edie, is Uh. it just a case of the left is just in shock?
5: Well, we may be we may be in, in shock, but I mean I certainly would not use the word hysteria. I mean, there are things about common decency and adherence to, to human rights and, and social justice. And I think it's it's quite interesting that there are, are many individual Jews and Jewish organizations, both in the United States and also in Britain, who are very, very unhappy with what he has done and wish very forcefully to to distance themselves and to say that this really is just so off the wall behavior and and also will have a terrible effect. And things like community cohesion. And I think it's interesting that the Home Secretary here, Amber Rudd, said that these measures could very well be recruiting grounds for the very terrorists that we're trying to, to get rid of. So even on, in terms of pragmatism, it seemed to be something that should never have been done. And in, in terms of of people's rights and a sense of solidarity and concern for, for one another, it's been, I think across the board, quite shocking. And it isn't just people on, on the left. You know, People want to uphold certain standards of, of decency and as I said, human rights. And that goes beyond whether you belong to the left or the right.
0: Charlie, that is definitely the argument, isn't it, that people are saying that this is a violation of human rights to be able to narrow down and to say that specifically seven countries in particular cannot enter the US for however long the period is, whether it's indefinitely, whether it's three months, whatever it is. It does appear to be a violation of international human rights because you're discriminating.
6: I honestly don't see how when a country has a right to protect its uh, borders. Actually, just briefly, let me just answer the Amber Rudd thing. I I find that quite interesting. You know, when we start worrying about how our enemies view things, then we're really in trouble. You know, you kind of have to run your own agenda. Otherwise, you're going to try and please everybody and you'll end up pleasing no one. You know, I don't think it's up to Amber Rudd to set U.S. foreign policy or U.S. domestic, especially U.S. domestic policy. But I'm hearing all this about common decency and violation of human rights. But I, I wish someone could actually explain to me what they mean by this, because I don't see it. And I'd be glad to you know, to hear, but, but I haven't you know, heard any kind of cogent answer yet.
0: Okay, Edie, how do you explain it then?
5: Well, I mean, if we just take the situation of, of banning all Syrian refugees indefinitely, so we're not even talking about the 120-day period, I mean, that is such an audacious act as we are facing, as the world is facing the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War. And as countries haven't been living up to their obligations, but, you know, places like Germany and, and Britain, to a lesser extent, have have been resettling Syrian refugees. To have a blanket banned on them is, I, I think, an outrageous behavior. But, but you do know do there are have certain, a right to... Again, decent does, standards does not and people. also I'm UN say, obligations in, in terms of treaties and, and signing up to UN Declaration on the Rights of, of the Refugee. It, it seems like a nightmare, and I think the word nightmare is the word that many people are actually using to describe the presence of Donald Trump in our lives. Well, yes, th-
6: This this is the hysteria that I'm talking about and I'm speaking about. Mr. Obama had virtually banned Syrians for many years. I think it was, uh, it was until 2016 that we had this influx of bringing in refugees. Before that, it was about 10 a year, 15, 20 a year. Others have banned people. Um, President Carter had banned Iranians for a time. I'm trying to remember, President Clinton had banned, I think it was Iraqis, if memory serves correct. This is a temporary ban. It is a security measure and a security measure alone. Seven countries were picked out from actually an original list by the Obama administration as part of the visa waiver program. We have every reason to make an argument on security because we know IS have said that they want to attack America and they want to infiltrate the Syrian refugees by planting people amongst them to come into the United States and carry out acts. All he said is, I want to know how the system is working. I want—I uh, think it's a 120-day ban, everybody, so we can look at our systems and make sure they're in order. Oh, by the way, and this is important, with waiver exemptions, so the Secretary of State and the Head of Homeland Security can write a waiver, if they so des- uh, desire.
0: Charlie, hold that thought a second because I do want to ask Edie, how do you respond to the claim made by a lot of people on the right saying that it is in the interest of national security? Surely President Trump has a duty as the head of America to put the security of his citizens first, no?
5: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But but we know, but first of all, that a number of terrorists were actually born in Britain, born in France, born in Belgium, even born in the United States. So, you know, we're not going to, there isn't going to be a perfect way of, of protecting ourselves. I mean, I think that's a point number one. And I think what is known is, is that the vetting process within the United States is very, very strict. And people are, are really anxious to find out how they could even tighten what has actually been been very strict. So I think that the word hysteria needs to be thrown back in the court of Trump and the people who support Trump because they seem to be implementing measures based on a, on a hysteria and, and whipping up a sort of nationalism. Which is quite frightening. And to think of what we've gone through, and here we are in 2017, and a lot of the rhetoric, things like America First, you know, that was the language of the 1930s. And do we
6: really want to bring
5: that back? I,
6: I ask this question. America First is what he said in his inaugural speech essentially, is every country's duty. A country or a government is supposed to act in its country's best interest first and foremost. And he also said every other country should do the same. So, you know, it's not that we're protectionist we're not just closing out others we hope to trade with others but he says he has to look after this country the united states i mean as far as jobs etc are concerned so again well, things have been taken well out of context every time donald trump opens his mouth people just go all lally and take things out of context which is well unfortunate. maybe
5: donald trump ought to listen to how what he comes out of his mouth, how it actually sounds. And there are a a lot of people who are not terribly political, who are absolutely horrified by what they see and what they hear, because unfortunately, what Donald Trump is saying and doing in the United States will have repercussions for the rest of
6: the world. And I think most Jews, we ought to be really concerned about about that. Hillary Clinton ran an extremely dirty campaign with this whole thing about misogynist and homophobe and and xenophobe, etc. And I, I know enough people who know him who uh, say that's nothing, you know, further from the fact. And you know, what? they jump on him and get all crazy, get all, you know, in the head. And, and and it's a time to let the guy be president and relax a little bit.
0: A fascinating discussion there, courtesy of political commentator Charlie Wolf and founder and executive director of the Jewish Council for Racial Equality, Dr Edie Friedman, talking to me there about President Donald Trump's executive order clampdown on entry to the United States from seven Muslim countries. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by Rabbi Morris Michaels and community volunteer Andy Lucas. We'll be discussing the subject on everyone's lips at the moment, President Donald Trump's executive order on migration. Plus, on a lighter note, Diana Toman will be speaking to Adam Gunstock and Charlotte Linton from the JLGB to discuss performing for royalty at Buckingham Palace. But first, Jewish Book Week 2017 is nearly upon us. It runs from the 25th of February to the 5th of March and will appear at a number of locations, but primarily King's Place and JW3. Lucy Silver is co-chair and the festival director and has been speaking to our entertainment and culture reporter, Kate Fulton, who also happens to be a massive fan of Book Week. Kate started by asking Lucy to tell us what we've got to look forward to
7: this year. Oh, there's a a whole panoply of things to look forward to. Give us a taster. (laughs) People always say, "Give us a highlights." You know, what do do you rate? (laughs) We're quite, quite. What do you rate? And I always say, "Well, we've curated the whole festival, so are there highlights? Perhaps there are. Perhaps there aren't. It depends on your interpretation." Well, just some different flavors then. All right. So different flavors. Lots on politics. Lots of global interests this year. So James Rubin. Is being interviewed by Emily Maitlis and on, obviously, the Clinton administration, his media support of Hillary Clinton, and indeed Trump, and Trump has been covered in several events. We have a panel on Trump. We're calling it the Wild West, the lawless Wild West. Yeah, and um, that was prescient because we programmed this in October. This is how it's mapping out, as you as you can see. And everybody's on that, Anne Applebaum Mark Lawson, world-renowned economist Ken Rogoff, who teaches at Harvard, is coming over and and Trenaman from The Times, and from the middle
8: right Daniel Johnson of standpoint. It's going to be a lot of opinions. I mean, think how many Jews are going to be in that room. Is there a Q and a or is there some sort of audience participation in those type of political? Discussion. Yes, we always have a and a People love a and a And generally, the
7: level of discourse and questions is high. So, yeah, high caliber. So, yes, indeed, audience participation is encouraged. Loads of hands go up. Last week, we put on Thomas L. Friedman at JW3 at short notice. And probably within two days of promoting the event, 140 people turned up. Yeah. And in that audience, 10 minutes Q&A at the end, and perhaps two thirds of the audience had their hands up for questions.
8: Very, very popular. So aside from politics, which is clearly very, as you say, very prescient at the moment, what else? What other sort of flavours? Have we got just pure escapism, fiction, fantasy type Of
7: course we do. We've got Rebecca Front. We're thrilled. Rebecca Front and her brother, Jeremy Front. Jeremy does radio, directs and produces and writes radio programs. And they're doing a skit for us, a, a, a sketch of Jack and Millie, an elderly Jewish couple. This is going to be a pilot and this is going to be tested at Jewish Book Week and other unknown material. So that's one. Then there's a walk with Mr. Heifetz. James Invern, who was the editor of Gramophone magazine, is coming over with a director and well-known actors and so on, including Henry Goodman. And they're testing the drama on Jewish Book Week for the first time. It's about Yasha Heifetz and a trip that he made to Jerusalem.
8: So it's actually being acted on stage, a little bit Edinburgh fringy.
7: Yes, exactly. That's—I mean—we love to do that sort of thing. It's
8: very exciting. It really brings all the different sort of genres of art. You've got a bit of theatre within the literature,
7: a bit of live theatre, indeed. Chloe Dankworth and her husband Charlie Wood are doing are doing jazz, and there's others. There are well-known musicians who are joining them, and they're doing jazz interpretations of Jeremy Robson's poems. So, if he has a poem about the sea, then they'll sing La Mer. That. Should be Gosh,
9: fun.
8: So it's all sort of integrated art, extremely good. And just tell us a little bit about your your preparation. I mean, everyone wants to sort of go behind the scenes a little bit. How how does it work? I mean, have you got a big staff? Is there a huge organisation, or is it all kind of falling on your broad shoulders? Well, no. I've got. We've got a good staff, but it's
7: very small. There's an enormous amount of surprising amount of production. So people have PowerPoint presentations. People. Bring instructions as to how many chairs they want, how they want them positioned, where they want to sit. Somebody might have a deaf left ear, a deaf right ear. All that kind of thing has to be considered well in advance. So that, and every event is videoed, or almost every event is videoed, and that's all got to be set up. Much of the curating of events I've done with the assistance of the council. And one or two people, especially in the council, have worked with me as consultants. But
8: yeah, that's how it works. And so you pretty much started straight after the the if not or you're already talking about next year. Yes, we're already <laughs> so. thinking about next year, and we've already got an event set
7: up for May. We're thinking about an event in September, a book launch with Nicole Krauss is bringing out a book August September. That sort of thing. A couple of debut authors are bringing out books in May. And we're hoping to do them at Libraria, which is in the East End of London, a small bookshop. So we're trying to
8: branch out in that way. But sticking with 2017, we're still at King's Place and we can still get tickets through King's Place? Yes,
7: we're largely at King's Place. 90% is at King's Place. Lunchtime events are at JW3 during the week. They are turning out to be immensely popular. You can still get events at King's Place, absolutely.
8: A lot of people have said that when they go to a talk, they feel that they should have read the book. Do you think that's necessary?
7: No, not at all. Most people, most authors would imagine that you haven't read the book. And quite a lot of books are launched at Jewish Book Week, so you can't have read the book in advance. So that shouldn't put people off? Not at all. And I think that what we try to do is we try to get authors to talk about the books rather than read long extracts, which I think the audience finds a bit boring. So we get a discussion going about books, why they're important and why they've written them now and how they fit in with the world and what's going on with the world. So that applies to fiction as much as to non-fiction.
8: You mentioned before about videoing. Is there any streaming going on at the time? Is there any way people who maybe can't come incapacitated or unable to get tickets for any reason? is Is there any streaming?
7: Yes. Couple of events, major events, have sold out. James Rubin and Comedy Question Time, and the big debate is virtually sold out. And they're going to be live streamed at half price. Half price tickets into hall two, into the a medium sized hall. So, so people actually are booking now to come to these overflow live relay events, and then. Some of our events at JW3 are going to be live-streamed into Jewish care homes. And then the videos, which are an amazing resource. Literally thousands of people watch the videos during the year. Almost more people, I think, watch the videos and come to the festival, and they watch them from all around the world.
8: And is there anything for those who aren't in London, in the provinces?
7: Yes, we always take authors to the provinces and we have partners in the provinces and they're extremely keen in hosting Jewish Book Week authors and so we work with them to see who will come and who they're interested in. And last but not least, children. What's going on for them this year? Children, we're taking our authors into schools. That worked incredibly last year and this year we're, we're doing the same. Six formers, therefore, will be able to see and watch and hear some of our historians, memoir writers. They like Philip Skelker, who is an ex-headmaster, loves to put on provocative events to make six formers think. So they might tie in with the curriculum, they might not, but they're going to stimulate them into argument. If you want more information, how do we find it? Go to our website or King's Place or JW3. And by the way, look out for our tube ads this year, which show we've got 24 books, book covers on our tube ads. And the message is, you can always judge Jewish Book Week by its covers.
0: Lucy Silver, the co-chair and festival director of Jewish Book Week, talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about this year's events. A reminder, Book Week runs from the 25th of February to the 5th of March, primarily at King's Place and JW3. For more information, then you can go to their website, which is Jewishbookweek, or jewishbookweek.com. In just a moment we will be this week's Schmooze. Just to remind you, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it does mean that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, this week, a group from the Jewish Lads and Girls Brigade were honoured at a ceremony held at Buckingham Palace. They were amongst ten other youth groups at a reception attended by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Two of the members of JLGB's Redbridge Band, Adam Gunstock and Charlotte Linton, have been speaking to community reporter Diana Thoman about the ceremony. Diana started by asking Adam to explain a bit about how the different
10: JLGB groups work. So yeah there's around about I think 400 children and adults who volunteer and we all do our bits around the country to bring the communities together.
9: When you say do your bits are we talking about musicians now or is something bigger than that?
10: I mean there's there's a couple of bands in each area so we've got a band in Redbridge I think there's a one in Manchester and there's one in Hendon and there's about three bands and the rest of them are just different units. They'll do activities and sport and we'll do activity sport and then we'll do Music as well, and and what do you play? I play the trumpet. Yeah. Oh, splendid! Yes. What do you play? Well, I play the
9: flute. And you play the flute! My goodness, yes. you couldn't have be been more opposites. You? <laughs> One drowning the other out. Yes. That's fantastic. How long have you been members of the band?
10: Oh, I think I joined when I was I know, about thirteen, just after my mitzvah I think.
9: And how old are you now? I'm 18, 18 now. So, yeah, so you're a good, veteran, aren't you? Ve- yeah, right. yeah. What about you,
11: Charlotte? Sure. I joined from the very beginning when I was eight years
9: old. Did you
11: really? Yeah, and now I'm 17, so I've been there over half my life. Oh, you
9: have. Playing the flute all that time. Yeah. Now then, let's get on to this tremendous achievement that you've done. What was the highlight of going to Buckingham Palace?
11: I think in itself, just being in Buckingham Palace, the amazing venue, and of course playing for such amazing young people and volunteers as well as of course the prince was just a great honour
9: did you actually meet him
11: I didn't, but Adam did. Yeah,
9: so. Did he talk uh, to you,
11: Adam? Uh,
10: yeah, I did get the uh, the opportunity, and I was very thankful that I got the opportunity like, given to me by the leaders. And we just explained what JLGB was about and what positive things we were doing for the community to him. And we had a good little chat, and it was just a quite relaxed situation. He's very
9: easy to talk to, he? Yeah, him, isn't very, I mean, he
10: does it for his job, probably, is not so, <laughs> Yes, yeah. but
9: even so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's yeah. true. And it was, what did you play for him?
10: Well, we played a um, lot like a medley of songs. When he came in, we played Raiders March. That we play that for him, and then we played different songs for different people who different for, the, for what they won. So we played some theme from Rocky and and Star Wars, depending on who won the awards. Which was very good.
9: Oh right, so yeah. this was all light light music then. No, yeah. I mean you didn't go in for sort of flute concertos or anything complicated. Did <laughs> you? No,
11: it's mainly pop music, <laughs> yeah. that mainly it's, popular popular music. Right?
10: Like it's it's quite. I mean, JJB is very up to date. We like we've got everything they do, so they try and keep the music up to date and the main things that happen at the moment to be put into into jlgb and like music and music wise as well
9: oh that's good so you're not playing old standards necessarily though
10: no, i mean well we sometimes do because we we help out with and we go do this, like social action when we go and help out with um, remembrance days and things we will play like pack up your travels and long way to prairie and and bandsman music as well which is really yeah. which is really fun because I like I like music it's really fun to play as well
9: I can I can about, especially with the trumpet
10: yes yeah, it's just a trumpet it's bonnet, remembrance. yeah. exactly yeah.
9: and tell me I read that you actually do a bit more than just playing music oh, you're yes. actually wheeling wheelchairs and that sort of thing yeah. as well on Remembrance Day
11: so we parade on Remembrance Day we represent the whole of jlgb the band especially because we're normally leading the parade playing our instruments and we get to talk to some interesting people and it's normally a great experience
9: and you're in uniform presumably
10: yes we are When big things like this we get into uniform and represent jlgb as it is and it's and it's it's really fun because at our age it's such a good experience to do things at places like the cenotaph and big occasions like that and to see people who have who've done things for our country and to represent them in a, as a band. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just a great, it's a great experience. It's a great experience.
9: Yes. Why do you think Redbridge was chosen as a matter of interest? Are you amongst the best?
10: <laughs> well, I think because we do, we do more than one parade and because we, we're, we're the band that we're always there. Um, oh, I, I see. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously the, the, other, the others always play a part.
9: You're in the That's front. Yeah, you're in the vanguard. Um, and yeah, right.
10: because all the other they they, they they march along. They help all. The, they push wheelchair. They, as you were saying before, they do all of that and, and really try and help out.
9: Do you have a lot of rehearsals? And did you have a lot of rehearsals for this this particular tribute, as it were?
11: Rehearse every Monday night. We come together as a group. We do we play instruments and we also do sports and games and stuff. Every Monday we've been rehearsing for. We always do music, but we also had a couple of intensive
9: long Sunday rehearsals yeah. as well. Just to make sure you were really up to speed. Especially
10: for him, the, the French staff yeah. here.
9: Well, it's been fantastic. Well, what's going to be your next big a big event, do you think? Can I'll you do, match that? <laughs> the Queen,
10: maybe? I don't, I don't know if I can get any much better than. Can't, that. I
9: can't get much better than no, going to Buckingham Palace. No, well, thank you both not. very much indeed. Right. It was a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Excellent stuff. Muzzled off to Adam Gunstock and Charlotte Linton and, of course, to the rest of their bandmates. They were talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about their JLGB group, Redbridge Band, being honoured at a ceremony held at Buckingham Palace. If you would like more information on the Jewish Lads and Girls' Brigade or, indeed, to find out how you can get involved with them, then do go to their website, which is jlgb.org. That's jlgb.org.
12: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Phil, Dave, and me today is Rabbi Morris Michaels and community volunteer Andy Lucas. The subject today is based on the story on everyone's minds at the moment. The chief rabbi has condemned President Donald Trump's executive order clampdown on entry to the United States from seven Muslim countries as totally unacceptable. Rabbis and other senior leaders from across the community have sent a letter about the dangers of institutionalized hatred. The question is... At what point does protecting national security become institutionalised hatred? Rabbi Michaels, let's start with you. How do you feel about President Trump's actions this week? Well, I think that President Trump has done
13: exactly what he said he was going to do when he was campaigning. I think there's an awful lot of unjustified surprise going on at the moment in America and around the world because he's doing what he said he was going to do. How can we expect otherwise, or did we expect him to suddenly transform from being a campaigning populist into becoming a president who was going to follow the patterns and the paradigms of his predecessors?
12: I'm interested you use the words a campaigning populist. I'm not sure that I would describe him as such. He's not very popular in the United States already. He's very
13: popular with a, with a very large section of the American population, actually. You know, that's how he got in. But he I, know, I know he didn't win the popular vote, but that could happen in this country as well. You know, people are talking about the American system, but our system, which is the first past the post in constituencies, could produce the same sort of situation. But that's not the question you asked me. No, it's not. Um, But then, you know, I'm a rabbi, so I'm allowed to to (laughs) digress. (laughs) No, I think that the chief rabbi's statement was uh, absolutely appropriate. I think that President Trump has, has really done the unthinkable. He has created a race hatred coming out of the White House. And that really is something that worries me no end. And did you agree with that?
14: In part. The only thing is that he is very, what, what I do like about him, is that he is very pro-Israel. You know, he's already talking about, you know, it's not going to be 100% with everybody. But, you know, he was talking, it isn't going to happen, about putting the embassy in Jerusalem, for instance. I do think that people are having a go at him and they're not giving him a chance. I don't necessarily agree that he is doing, you know, with with a blanket ban. But if you read into the small print, it's not necessarily a blanket
12: ban. It, well, shall um, I tell you something? There are, there's an Iraqi, originally Iraqi Jewish family whom I know, and they have family in America. Yeah. And they are British and have been in this country since the 1970s. And they have been told... Don't try to go to America at the moment. The problem with all of this, isn't there, is
0: that this is not a black and white situation. I think an awful lot of people are making it a very clear-cut decision. They are saying, in no uncertain terms, this is solely an attack on Muslims. It's an attack on Muslim countries, perhaps but not an attack on Muslims per se, because one would assume that then suddenly all Muslims from around the world wouldn't be allowed into America, which, of course, was
12: probably one of the original threats. So you didn't just get the... Didn't hear what I said. What i just said: Iraqi Jews who are not Muslims who have lived in London for forty years did have been have... told don't in the next nineteen days go to America because you were born in Iraq. But did they do, have? They got a British passport because of course they have.
14: Because if they've got a British passport, there should not be a problem. They can go. Who's told them they mustn't go? You know, in, in
13: all probability, they're dual citizens. Yeah, and therefore they would fall under the initial ban that President Trump announced. However, he's had to backtrack on a number of parts of that. Has he, in fact? uh, On that blanket ban. Boris Johnson, our foreign secretary, tells us that he has made all the right noises with the American officials so that it won't affect British citizens, including British citizens with dual nationality.
12: Well, why have these Jews from Iraq, who've been in Britain for 40 years, been told, officially told, Absolutely. do not they come prob- to America. You're obviously
0: talking about a very specific case that none of us know the ins and outs of. However, it is a very strong chance that they have been warned off just because they don't need or want the aggravation. Although within the boundaries of what President Trump has laid out in terms of these restrictions, there is a very strong chance that once their story is explained, they would be absolutely allowed into the US. I feel that the actual main crux of this particular conversation though, and that what we should all really be, I suppose, discussing, maybe being concerned about, is that a lot of people are saying that this is the first step towards what happened they were comparing to the Nazi era. Yeah. And Although, yes, it is true that there are elements of it that are the same, there is something very uncomfortable about comparing it to a leader in the form of Adolf Hitler, who wanted the total annihilation of a particular people versus someone like President Trump who is saying that he wants to put the interest of his country's security above everything else and therefore he's obviously trying to establish what the potential threats are there is something very uncomfortable about comparing it to the Nazi era for me personally.
14: Yes I agree with you because there is actually not a lot of comparison because he's not saying he wants to murder all the Muslims. What he is saying is that certain countries are not allowed in. Um, Temporarily. 90 days. Temporarily. 90 days. Is
12: it not true? Is it not true that he has left out certain Muslim countries where many, many baddies have come from?
14: Yeah, he's missed out Saudi Arabia and he's missed out a couple of others, which he maybe shouldn't have done.
12: But all this is doing is making the bad people, the evil people who cause all these troubles, those fanatics, he's making them even more determined to make trouble. Do you not think so,
13: Reverend? Well, that's always a danger. And that's the danger of taking any sort of action. But a couple of comments. The first is that all of the terrorist acts that have taken place in America in recent times by Muslims have been by people who actually not come from any of those seven countries. So that's one comment I'd make. But I'd like to extend this conversation a little to say that what worries me, perhaps even more than the content of the ban itself, is the fact that it's been done without thought, without looking at what the implications are. It's shooting from the hip, And that's what bothers me no end, that we have somebody who is in the White House, you know, running the most powerful nation in the world who is acting on his own volition without using the Senate, without using the House of Representatives, without, I guess, really using the sort of facilities that are available in terms of advice and guidance And making snap
12: decisions and we, the rest of the world, have to live with those. And that's very frightening because, as you said earlier, he's the president of the most powerful country in the world and therefore you can't have a man like that in charge of the most powerful country in the world that's what's worrying me
0: but then again having said that snap decisions that have been made in accordance with US law one would assume because I can't imagine that with all of the people that are in congress are in the senate would just allow for a bill that any of them who have been career politicians for a long time deemed to be illegal I don't believe for a second that they would allow something to pass like that it's not solely up
13: to the president no, No, the American system Allows what is known as executive action, whereby the president can take action without it going through the Senate and the House of Representatives, and that executive action is what President Trump has been using for the last week, ten days. And as far as the legality of it is concerned, there have been challenges. In fact, the acting attorney general challenged it and was she fired. Got fired. So he's being totally undemocratic.
0: One might say that. But at the same time, one might also say that he clearly feels the need to put the security of his country above everything else. And I can't help but wonder why people react to that in such a way as that they are. The opposite argument, and I mentioned this earlier on the paper review, the opposite argument has been that there have been countries throughout the world that have banned Israeli citizens from going in for no other reason than they are Israeli passport holders. And it just seems a bit, if I could almost make it an almost playground scenario, a bit unfair, that there is not quite the same anger, the same hype about that as there is with a temporary ban.
12: Israel is not the most powerful country in the world. But at the same time, let me point out to you, that the Prime Minister of Israel, who is not known for his tolerance towards Muslims, Israel has taken in a great number of Syrian refugees. And yes. no Syrian refugee can now go to the United States. Temporarily.
14: Tempor- yeah, it's only a temporary thing. It's for 90 days. days. It's 90 days. Which is a long but, time. But Israel is doing Tikkun olam Israel is, yeah, well, exactly. is doing Tukkun Olam. And he, I believe he also said that he didn't agree with what Trump is doing. But, you know, that still doesn't sort of equate with some of the Arab countries saying if you've got an Israeli passport, you can't, or an Israeli visa, you can't even go in transit to some of their countries if you're going like a hop-off, you can't yeah, I, do that. I accept
12: that. I accept that. But the It's fact, a
14: bit hypocritical. But the fact, to... the
12: fact remains that America, let's say it again, we've said it a number of times already, but America remains the most, powerful, most powerful country in the world and is supposed to be the most democratic country in the world. And the Prime Minister of Israel can rise above it when it comes to Syrian refugees. But President Trump, won't allow any Syrian refugees in at all. OK, so let me put it to you like this then. Why would you insist that the most
0: democratic country in the world has to act democratic towards countries that are not necessarily known for being the most democratic in the world? Is it not
13: just a case of taste of own medicine? So we're not talking about America acting against countries. We're actually talking about America acting against individuals. It's the individuals, refugees, who are trying to get into the country, not the country. And I think we have to look at that. And I think we also have to remember that coming out of Syria, are a whole host of Christian refugees, and they're not being allowed in either. So that's exactly the point, though, that it is actually an attack on those countries rather than the individuals, no? No, it's it's an ill-thought-through plan, which didn't take into account any of the implications and... I mean, for example, he totally ignored the fact that there are many people from these seven countries who have the green form which enables them to work in America. They actually had been living in America for years. They happened to go back to Somalia or Iraq or wherever it happens to be for a holiday to visit elderly
12: parents, who knows what. And now they're not being allowed back in. There was this famous sportsman, Mo Farah who is British now but lives in America and he's been terribly worried that he can't go back to his family in America because he's been told he can't go.
14: No, but he he hasn't been been told he can't go. he's He's
12: go He's been advised
0: that he might have a few troubles when getting back in. He's not been categorically told he can't because he does hold a British passport. So therefore, again, it's almost case by case, people will be allowed in. I think that there is... It was the word used by Charlie Wolfe earlier on in the programme, this element of hysteria without actually knowing. And I admit it as well that I do not necessarily know all the facts of this particular bill,
13: this particular case. And I think neither does President Trump.
12: I think that's where the (laughs) hysteria is coming from. Exactly. President Trump's the hysteric. He may be, he may not.
14: Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But he is trying to protect his country he is doing what he said he would do during pre-election and he's doing exactly what he's done which is more than a lot of politicians he is, he is being honest about it he might have gone round it the wrong way and he might not have gone into it in the correct way in saying well we're going to check everybody and if you're, if you're a Christian from that country you can come in oh, that would um,
13: really have been racist
12: i'm afraid our time is up so then we'll have to leave it but my thanks to our guests rabbi morris michaels of alice garden synagogue and community volunteer andy lucas And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from
15: New North London, Masorti Synagogue. I'm particularly moved to speak about the coming week's Torah portion, Bo, since it was my late father's Bar Mitzvah Sidra and I miss him very deeply. I'm always struck by the opening words, which are the repeated instruction from God to Moses, Bo El Paro, go to Pharaoh. My teacher, Professor Jonathan Maganet, said that would have been like telling somebody during the days of the Third Reich, go to Berlin and tell Hitler what to do. But it expresses a basic courage and faith which seem to me to be the essence of the Jewish narrative repeated time and again through history, which is that our story is a story which has the courage to confront wrong and injustice, not to be afraid of tyranny, but to envisage behind its temporary power the abiding values and ideals of a world of compassion justice and equality freedom and peace the world as god desires it to be it is with this vision that moses confronts pharaoh that isaiah seven centuries later sees even when jerusalem is surrounded by the assyrian army a vision of the day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb when none will hurt or destroy in all god's holy mountain It is this which inspires Rabbi Akiva 800 years later again in the first century to laugh when he sees a fox walking across the ruins of the Temple Mount saying, God who brought to pass destruction will also bring to pass delivery and the recreation of our people in their ancient land. It is this vision which we must not forget in days of fear and difficulty, in days of xenophobia, in days when our vision, when a world open to all people in equality, seems more imperiled than ever. This is the courage and the ideal of the Jewish narrative. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New
0: North London Masorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish Views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Charlie Wolfe and Dr Edie Friedman, Lucy Silver, Adam Gunstock and Charlotte Linton. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Rabbi Morris Michaels and Andy Lucas, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of the Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website jewishnews.co.uk and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.